Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine what this world would look like without him. You often hear citizens of the U.S., talk about saving the Western world. But had had he not been there, you'd be starting from scratch again. Welcome to the Warrior You podcast, proudly presented by Hindsight Leadership and Resilience. The Warrior You podcast delves deep into the topics of leadership, resilience and human optimization. Our mission statement is simple. You're the mission. A massive shout out to our main sponsor, gym equipment specialist, Aussie Strength a proud Australian veteran-owned business who have kitted out home garage gyms and huge fitness centres all over Australia and globally. During this series, Trent and Bram will be pulling apart leadership styles through history and attributing them with a score for different areas of leadership. By doing this, they hope to find skills and attributes that modern leaders may or may not want to emulate. This week, they dissect Sir Winston Churchill as a leader. Churchill was born in 1874 and was a direct descendant from the Dukes of Marlborough. He started his career as a journalist and military man. He joined Parliament in 1900 and was the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom from 1940 to 1945, when he led the country to victory in the Second World War. He was a leader who could bring disparate groups of people under one banner, and make them carry out a mission and vision for the nation. We start off our conversation with a snippet from Churchill's blood, toil, sweat and tears speech. A war cabinet has been formed of five members, representing with the liberal opposition, the unity of the nation. The three party leaders have agreed to serve either in the war cabinet or in high executive office. The three fighting services have been filled. It was necessary that this should be done in one single day on account of the extreme urgency and rigour of events. But it must be remembered that we are in the preliminary stage of one of the greatest battles in history, that we are in action at many points in Norway and in Holland, that we have to be prepared in the Mediterranean, that the air battle is continuous and that many preparations have to be made here at home. In this crisis, I hope I may be pardoned if I do not address the House at any length today. I would say to the House, as I said to those who have joined the government, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears and sweat. Analyzing Sir Winston Churchill as a leader with Trenton Bram. So here we are, Warrior You podcast. I'm joined by Trent, my partner in crime. We're going to dissect this week Hitler. Each week we go through a different leader and we give them a score out of 50 last week. Uh, who did we do last week, Trent? 
Hitler. Hitler. Did Hitler. Yep. So this Dictator. is his nemesis. His nemesis, Churchill. Yep. Um, yeah, so we go through, we give them a score on inspiration, motivation out of uh, 10. We give them a score on providing purpose and direction. Again, that's our turn. He joined Parliament in the we 1900s and was the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom their leadership from 1940 to when he led the country to victory in the Second World War. And, he, and I gave him 10 out of 10. But anyway, maybe, maybe that's a bit, bit of conjecture there. Enduring legacy, what was their enduring legacy from their leadership and how it ended for them, and overall leadership summary with a score out of 50, and we're doing that each week with some famous leaders throughout history. If you have any leaders that you'd like us to go and dissect, just send uh, send us a direct message and we'll see what we can do. But let's get into it. This week, Churchill, I love Churchill. Yeah. Um, Winston Churchill. Sir uh, Winston Churchill. Yeah, probably one of the um, one of those leaders who you in his early days that you go and analyze if you if you want to see a, a person who can bring together disparate groups under one banner and make them carry out a vision or a mission. So he's born in 1874. English aristocracy. So he was a direct descendant from the, the Dukes of Marlborough. Um, his father and grandfather were members of the Conservative Party. My style of politics, I'm afraid to say, Trent. Sorry, mate. Oh, well, you as well, I guess. We're right there with you. Yeah. So he he learnt his leadership sort of foundations in Sandhurst, um, starting there in 1893. In 1895, he was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the 4th Queen's Own Hussars um, Regiment of the British Army. Is that Lord Flashheart, doesn't it? <laughs> he was eager to experience war, and so he travelled to Cuba and joined Spanish troops in trying to suppress the Cuban revolutionaries. I'd love to go to Cuba now, to be fair. Be you know, awesome. Mm, be, be, go there for the old cars and the mm, and the old uh, mm, infrastructure. Mm, probably not what I'd, what I'd go there for. Obviously, I'd go there for the architecture. Whilst aligning more with Liberal Party policies... He did have imperialist views, so he desired to keep the empire together, which saw him align with the conservatives, which was good because his father and grandfather were conservatives. In 1887, he was assigned as a journalist. To ensure this, he gained accreditation from the pioneer in the Daily Telegraph, not the Daily Telegraph that we list, you know, don't read now, and he wrote regular updates and also began to write books. In 1898, saw military action in Sudan. That's interesting because that was one of the first wars that started to be run along ethnic lines because of water. Not sure if you're aware of that, but um, it was one of the first around water shortages because of the the movements of uh, the Muslims who used to, for thousands of years, support Sudanese farmers. Um, And then they started to do land grabs in around the area, so it became almost a civil war and then flowed into what was the the first of the modern wars along uh, well, what we see as climate change, even even then, 1898, climate change, who would have thought? Um, Interesting. And also, um, you know, it's one of the wars that Australia uh, participated in, form, in sending foreign bodies to as well. Is that right? Indeed. Prior to the Boer War? So that's, yes. In 1899, Churchill sailed to South Africa as a journalist, writing for the Daily Mail and the Morning Post. You know, he was captured as a prisoner of war in a Boer War. Camp in Pretoria? I didn't realise that. Yeah. 
so yeah, so so right, so the Sudan was prior to prior to the Boer War, about ten years prior. And in December, Churchill escaped the prison over the latrine wall. In January 1900, he was appointed as lieutenant in the South African Light Horse Regiment, joining Redvers Buller's fight to relieve the siege of Ladysmith and take Pretoria. And his journalism and writings rose to prominence during this time in South Africa. He entered Parliament with the Conservatives in 1900, defected to the Liberals in 1904, and then back to the Conservatives in 1924. That was Churchill, I guess, in a nutshell. A conservative military man, liked to travel, liked to write, obviously. And where we left off was he then joined the Conservatives, 924. So, you got anything to add prior to, we get, prior to getting into his inspiration or motivation? Not at this point. Good. So, I gave him 10 out of 10 for inspiration and motivation from his, for his leadership style. And I'll tell you why. So, like Hitler, he was a very effective orator, orator, and often used speeches to articulate his visions, and he rallied lots of people around him. I think the two of them probably did look at each other in, in some regards and copy, copy what was happening as well. Some of his famous speeches include um, blood, toil, sweat, and tears speech to motivate the British public of the determination to win the war. Yeah, shall- have you uh, yeah. have you listened to that speech before? I have, yeah. Yeah, so uh that's a that's an amazing amazing speech. It's given on the 13th of May from memory uh 1940 uh in order to form seek support and form a multi-party parliament. Right. It's a really really fantastic speech. So p- powerful to to have people look at and give them a vision for where he saw the country going and then bring them all in the same same direction. Yeah, interestingly, his his aim at that point was to form that parliament. It was the audience, even though it was given in parliament, the audience was specifically parliament. So right. that was, uh, you know, he really targeted his audience quite well. Another famous speech was after Dunkirk. He gave the speech about we shall fight them on the beaches, et cetera, et cetera. Spectacular speech. Mm. The Battle of Britain speech, uh, used to motivate and inspire people of the steely determination to carry on and fight the war in the face of the Blitz and the London uh, every night being bombed. That's the darkest hour. That's the darkest hour yeah. speech. Yeah, and they tried to. You know, Hitler was trying, and and the the Luftwaffe were trying to bomb London into submission. And all it really did, and when you you've got to think about this from a strategic you know perspective, all that did is make the British more uh, resolve. Absolutely, yeah. Resolute, yeah. It, and if you think about if you think about how you would want a nation to capitulate to you by taking the fight to them through invisible means through bombs, probably isn't the way that you're going to make them capitulate. The Vikings knew that you need people. If they'd had Germans on the soil. I think it would have been a different outcome if if that had happened, which they could have done, but they uh, they had a war on too many fronts. Yeah, Churchill did it did the same in in response to. Yeah, well, we don't talk about that. You look at Dresden. Dresden was absolutely mm. annihilated. Um, mm. That's a bit. That was a big town. If you go there now, it's beautiful. It's brand new, huge streets. So um, they got the British to thank for that, I guess. Yeah, I mean, shouldn't talk about the war like that. 
make it seem like there's anything positive out of it. But um, yeah. And then he had the Iron Curtain speech to articulate vision of opposing Soviet domination of Europe, which really was the start of the Cold War. Yeah, for, for sure. Also known as the sinews of peace speech. Cool. So mm-hmm. he was able to use his perception of being a courageous, optimistic maverick in order to energise and rally the British people around his vision. I think they really warmed to that. I mean, you think of the archers at Agincourt. That's the sort of mm-hmm. sort of person that he was trying to reach out and say, hey, we are this. Against yeah. great odds, we can beat every everyone. But then you've got the hinge factor with Agincourt. If anyone knows anything about the battle... They should have lost that to the French, but the French cavalry got stuck in the mud because it rained all night before and the, and the uh, archers just knocked them all off. That's a really abridged version, but um, fairly accurate. His public appeals and speeches for commitment to the war effort strengthened public resolve, massively improving his popularity, inspiring people of his vision. I mean, people in Australia loved him. You know, People in America loved him. People around the world loved, loved Churchill. The empire, the yeah. empire particularly. So he did these these appealing public speeches coupled with his own public presence amongst the troops and he'd walk around destroyed cities and then he'd show his leadership despite his ill health, further inspired people of his vision and around his leadership and created a perception he understood and emphasised with the, the common Britain. And we're not talking about just in and around London. It went all the, way, all the way down to Cornwall, all the way up to Scotland, across to, mm-hmm. across to, to Wales and you know he was, every, he was everywhere he was. He worked hard. He didn't sleep much. When he did, he slept a couple of hours a day, I think, um, at, at a time. And he just, you know, he put energy into his leadership. And you can hear that during his uh, speeches as well. You know, he's he's pretty, uh, he's pretty tireless. And everything you read about him shows how energetic he was. And we often talk about leadership being an energy transference. Imagine what it would have taken to be a leader during this particular time, be a successful wartime leader. The amount of energy you'd have to transfer to to a whole nation. We're not talking an organisation; talking about a whole nation, yeah. you know. And at that point, it follows on from Chamberlain's government, and they were pretty tired, they were pretty timid, you know. And through his forceful personality, uh, and and you hear it during his darkest hour speech, you know, defying the odds, never giving up, never surrender. Those sorts of those sorts of words. And he was. Quite characteristically hmm. uh, humorous yeah. as well. During his speeches, he tinges it with a, a fair degree of humour. But unlike many of the other leaders and people of his time, he'd actually been to Hitler's Germany and he'd seen Hitler's Germany and how it was how it was rising. So the rise and rise of yeah. the, the Third Reich, and so he'd seen it, and few others had actually had actually seen it prior to them. Yeah, and he just part of the problem was he couldn't convince others at the time of the threat yeah and if you think about dan andrews at the moment and what he's going through in Mm. as a leader in melbourne in victoria uh, around the pandemic he's made himself so accessible to the media that 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 he fronts up as a punching bag day in day out and and if you if you go back and have a look at Churchill, he didn't do that he didn't make mm. himself accessible for scrutiny. What he actually did is he stood in front of people and he jammed down their throat positivity. The and, then he, and then he walked away. There was no Q&A for three hours about why you didn't use the military for, you know, COVID security guards. Like he just walked away from that because he had bigger issues at play. 
You know, and I think that our current politicians, they're way too malleable to journalistic, you know, inquiry when there's a crisis or when there's a problem. Just get on and do your job. Anyway, sorry, I'm going to grandstand a little bit. Yeah, and so his previous, so Churchill's previous wartime experience saw him command respect, which is interesting, which further inspired people of his ability to lead. I mean, I mean to be fair, he was a disaster the Gallipoli campaign, I guess we don't even think about that in world for World War Two in context, do we? He got sacked royally after after Gallipoli. Mm. But, but you imagine what the world would have looked like had Churchill not not been the prime minister at the time. Mm. We wouldn't have gained gained enough time and space to allow the US forces to enter the war. Yeah. I mean it'd be a very different world now. Yeah. Imagine that sliding doors moment. Yeah, and I wonder I wonder if the sacrifice was really worth it, you know, the, the, the sacrifice of Gallipoli, if it was even really worth it previous to, you know, in World War One. I. I mean, that's a whole other podcast, isn't it? Really interesting. Yeah, and he was forgotten. It was forgotten. It wasn't forgotten by Australians, but it was forgotten. Right. His cross-party defection saw him viewed as principled and having integrity in his beliefs. However, some saw this as, an, uh, as opportunism and self-serving, which I think he was self-serving, to be fair. Also, his inspiration tended to be strongest during time of peril. Peacetime saw high inspiration diminish as evidenced in the 1945 election loss after the war. So some pros. What score did I give him again? I can't remember. I think it was 10 out of 10. I gave him 10 out of 10 anyway. So some pros. He was able to resonate and emphasise with all level sphere of society in England through his oratory skill making his leadership appeal pretty much to not only his base but the elite and also bourgeoisie and the proletariat. Mm. He was able to use his perception to effectively identify with the common Britain. His strengthening leadership and resonance of his vision continued to motivate. He was able to lead particularly well during a crisis, strengthened really by him being able to stand in front of groups and give those amazing speeches and crystallise a vision. Some against... That's yeah, pretty, sorry. pretty, yeah, pretty interesting. Given, um, I guess, the elements of uh, class divide uh, at the time as well. Post World War One, class divide was was quite strong mm. at the time. So for him to come from aristocracy and be able to galvanise, uh, you know, uh, the upper elites and the working classes uh, would have been no no easy feat. Yeah, for sure. Some against, some cons. Um, marginal, some political figures saw him as opportunistic, self-serving and narcissistic. I think he was. And I think I think a lot of really good leaders are narcissists. Um, there is that uh, dark that dark triad um, of, of personality and, and narcissism does come into these things when you have a little bit of an ego. His inspiration high during crisis, but often was really low during times of stability and peace. I think he floundered when it was business as usual. We talk about place in leadership all mm. the time in hindsight. Mm. And I think he was that great wartime leader. And you you was you're speaking before about uh Gallipoli and, and we tend to in history, uh, again, not so much in Australia and New Zealand, in history we tend to forget his impact around Gallipoli, but was it Gallipoli and his his own personal shame that drove him uh to greater things and allowed him to be where he was? And finally, end it in World War Two. 
Wow. So so for me, you know, maybe this was a step. Maybe maybe this was necessary. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, for him to be where he was in in time and place in the forties. Do you agree with me? Ten out of ten. I certainly do. I think, uh, despite his flaws, and and we're all we've all got flaws. I think his ability to, you know, to to give vision and uh, inspiration. He was absolutely able to inspire a nation, as opposed to Hitler, mm. who, yes, was able to inspire an element of of a nation, but not not completely, and not and not for the duration. Yeah, there was a lot of dark forces at play against Hitler. There wasn't there wasn't that mm. against Churchill. Right, so 10 out of 10 from both of us. Providing purpose and direction, so the ability to envis- uh, envisage goals, mobilise people and resources to achieve his aim. Uh, I gave him 8 out of 10 for this. I'll tell you why. He, he was a career politician. Over his life, his vision was to ensure British, British strength in Europe. He was really motivated to ensure the welfare of the British people and to defeat Germany in both wars. He was the first Lord of the Admiralty and uh, during World War I. And what, what was his direction? Defeat Germany and provide for the public. That was, that was basically it. And he came to that position in 1911. Um, he looked at decreasing the German naval threat by building two British ships for every one that Germany built. And so in the modern era, he was really uh, in charge of the British Navy still being king of the seas. He was able to convince Parliament to buy the Anglo-Persian Oil Company in 1914. God, that's visionary. Included in the war cabinet to oversee British conduct of the war, increase aerial and naval expenditure. He implemented a blockade of Germany, planned invasions of Germany in the Gallipoli campaign. Um, we just, we've been talking about that. Yeah, and that interestingly, uh, I think I think the the visionary aspect uh, is really around that aerial expenditure as well, because mm. at that particular point in time, there are a lot of forces acting against uh, aviation as the future of warfare, mm. and and Churchill really saw a fight for resources and the introduction of new uh, new weapons, uh, innovative weapon systems such as aircraft was quite visionary but he was he was particularly flawed and and you know we've spoken about his world war 1 campaigns he did make mistakes well, um, i got to wonder the, though the the gallipoli piece you know the skeptic in me says that maybe they knew it wouldn't be successful or as a as a someone who's done military planning or the second order effect might be worth the rub so we may not be successful here, but the fact is we're going to tie up a lot of Turkish troops. And let's not forget, we're not talking about Turkish commanders. We're talking about German, yeah. although Ataturk was the lead commander. We're talking about there was German specialist troops, German specialist advisors at all levels, and they were all tied yeah. up there in Gallipoli, um, which, you know, and now you've got all the colonials down there. Well, yeah. not all the colonials. It was British as well, wasn't it? But, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And he and this comes later, but he also supported the use of poison gas. Yeah. You know, there's there's a range of issues he was, you know, in hindsight wrong on, but I guess at the time, leadership, place, all mm. of those sorts of things, he he was uh, absolutely steadfast in his personal 
belief about what he was doing and his vision and his direction at the time. Yeah. And that, I guess, is the aspect of narcissism coming hey, um, into his style of leadership. See if you can answer this. What country protected the Australian troop ships on their way to Gallipoli with their own naval vessels? Do you know? I don't. Ready for your mind to be blown? The Japanese. There you go. Yep. There you go. The Japanese still saw themselves as Asian Europeans. They saw themselves different as Asians. They're not. They they still to this day they don't. They're not Asian. And um, it wasn't until after World War One that the Australian, uh, the white Australian policy and the American, the American policy as far as um, economic measures with Japan went that they forced the Japanese into the uh, into basically hating us. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, right. mm, did a whole heap of stuff on it at uni. Um, righto, where were we? So, you know, he commanded the Royal Scots Fusiliers in 1916. Yeah, right. I did not know that. He returned to Parliament to argue for greater conscription and recognition of soldiers after the war. Um, I'd say I'd say he was given the Fusiliers because he was essentially um, once he was kicked out of politics, uh, he was also sacked from all forms of accountability from all roles and administration of the war. So mm. he's gone back to he's gone back on the tools essentially. Yeah, can you imagine commanding officer? Mm. Hey, hey, boss. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and after the war, he was Chancellor of Exchequer. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. From 1924 to 1929. Uh, and his vision was to improve the, the lives and welfare of the British people, particularly workers. Um, over this time, he oversaw returning to the UK to the gold standard. Do you, do you know much about that? Uh, I think that was, I thought that was Bretton Woods after the Second World War where they delinked from gold. But, yeah, um, so, so he, was pretty, he was pretty junior at that time as the Chancellor for the Exchequer. So mm. uh, for those who are not from the UK, essentially Minister for Finance. Mm. And he was really pushed from pillar to post amongst his advisors, but he allowed... He allowed the UK to be linked to the gold standard, which is essentially locked locked their their fiscal policy to a fixed price for gold. Yeah, which works well when well it stops it stops inflation and all those sorts of things. But if you slavishly apply the rule to uh, to the gold standard, then it can generate political instability. It can cause a whole range of second order, uh, second and third order effects. And uh, John John Keynes, a renowned economist, essentially indicated that that Churchill's relenting to his advisors to lock them into the uh, gold standard essentially brought about the, the Great Depression. It was one of the major factors. Is, that, about right? The Great Is yeah. that right? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, he did some good things as like minister for sure. minister for finance or exchequer, um, reduced the pension age, increased. The widow's pension decreased tax to small business. That'd be nice. 
um, introduced subsidies, support workers' wages, and argued for a, for a minimum wage. That's interesting, isn't it? That's not cons- that's is that conservative? That's his liberal. That's, that's, his, li- that's his liberal tendencies coming out. Even though he was a mm. he was an empire man, mm. he was a he was a monarchist. Uh, that's his liberal tendencies of looking after the workers that mm. uh, uh, workers and families. Very much a liberal liberal belief system. Yeah, a British British Urge liberal. In Australia, we're yeah. talking a, la- a labour type system, really. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Uh, Lead up to World War Two and prime ministership, so we're talking now 1940 to 1945, his whole direction was about the de- defeat of Germany. From 1933 onwards, Churchill opposed appeasement. He wasn't, go- he wasn't allow- going to allow them to just remain unchecked doing anything they wanted in Europe. He was warning of Nazi militarisation. He was calling for Britain to rearm which completely put him at odds with the Prime Minister Chamberlain. So, so if, you, if you ever get to watch Churchill, you will see that them go head-to-head prior to him becoming Prime Minister in 1940. Not mm. with the people because constant, there was constant polling of the people who were against a, appeasement. The greater majority of the UK was, a, was against appeasement and, at the time. But Chamberlain was totally for it. I seem to remember that he actually travelled to Germany to meet with Hitler. He did, yeah. And not just him, uh, and a large number of his ministers as well. And the royal family. I don't know, maybe. I'm not sure. I'd love to – I'd love to – I'll research that later. <laughs> I think that's right, though. Yeah. So he led the war ministry in 1940 that would create the plan, execute war operations. Uh, he opposed Chamberlain and, and Halifax's calls for peace, instead resolving to fight to the end. He made heaps of speeches to fight on and strengthen resolve to both Parliament and the British public. He was really the trigger to launch Operation Dynamo, which saved the British forces at Dunkirk. That would yeah, that would have been a massive defeat in detail had that not happened. Crazy. I mean, we've seen there's 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 obviously movies and it's it's a well documented operation. Mm. But interestingly, Churchill was one of those hands-on type of leaders. He was never quite satisfied with just being told, you know, given reports or, you know, he didn't fight like or lead like Hitler did. He would he would absolutely go and see bombed-out factories. And during Dynamo, he actually went down to the docks and inspected the capabilities and the capacity of the, the mixed fleet, the combined fleet, so uh, navy and uh, and civilian fleet, and and it was that sort of leadership from the front and getting the details. He was a details guy, and, he, and like you said, he, he slept two or three hours a night because he was not only running, you know, his his war council, but he was uh, mm. he was also out and about on the, you know, in the field and and mm. actually understanding what was going on. His his involvement and, and drive around dynamos. Essentially, what saved the the BEF? Yeah, there's there's no doubt in my mind that because he was such a a reader of history, mm. as if he didn't think about Sir Francis Drake standing there at uh, I think it was down Portsmouth, maybe you know, looking out over and watching the Spanish Armada, and then um, and then using mm. not only military vessels but also all the civilian vessels to to defeat them. So. You know his idea to to put the uh, the navy and and civilian vessels together. Yeah, as you say, save the day. I was Lord of the Admiralty, so effectively mm. the American, like the American Secretary of the Navy, he's well versed in the capabilities. Mm. And 
he initiated the Battle of Britain. He was a, there's a large reason why Australian pilots were involved in that, and also he stopped troops from being moved to support the Commonwealth in favour of remaining behind in the United Kingdom, which actually led to the Japanese moving so quickly down through Singapore and into New mm. Guinea. Although but, there's other other failures in, in regard to that, which we'll talk about in future episodes. But, but interestingly, I mean, that's a uh, that's one of those controversial decisions that uh, people continue to mm. discuss. You know, again, it's like that failure to defend Singapore or adequately dis- defend Singapore resulted in the, the main effort being maintained, which is defence of mm. the United Kingdom. Mm. So... So even though he was an empire guy, he was he was prepared to sacrifice the extremities in order to to save the UK. I, I would argue it's probably it was probably the right decision. And, yeah. and again, Australia heavily impacted, and along with a, a number of other colonial troops, impacted as a result of that decision. But you know, what was the alternative? Well, we just had to nation up. Yeah, and America um, and America had started to really you know shift the weight of the war at that stage, and and the For US sure. and and Russia. He lost the election after World War II in 1945. People just didn't see him as a peacetime leader. But then the spectre of the Cold War in the 50s saw him win prime ministership again between 1951 and 1955. And it was because he then started to give speeches about opposing communism and providing for the people, ushering a new political age. I suppose that his vision was all around combat yet again. Yeah, and he was an anti-communist right from the early days as well, mm. pre-World War Two. Yeah, he was instrumental in the relationship between the United Kingdom and the USA, and he also started them down the path of gaining nuclear weapons because he just saw the Soviet threat as, as too much for them to be able to deal with from a, uh, a military response, purely conventional. Tried to maintain the British Empire, suppress Kenyan and uh, Malayan uprisings, um, and he did this even during serious health problems. And Again, against communism. Yeah, you know he he really was a fighter, and he was great at providing purpose and direction in that context, in that fighting context. So, some pros around his ability to provide um, purpose and motivation. He can be seen to learn from his mistakes. So some rash, aggressive leadership during World War II, um, in World War I, sorry, he, he saw that and tempered it and became a little bit more cautious and a little bit more second, third order strategic. You know, he actually wrote, uh, and I quote, looking back with, with after knowledge and increasing years, I seem to have been too ready to undertake tasks which were hazardous or even forlorn. And his wife, Clementine, told a biographer that, you know, given the burden of his failure at Gallipoli, she thought that Winston would die of his grief. So wow. he was he was absolutely devastated by the outcome of Gallipoli. So mm. you know he made he made mistakes throughout his career, but he he was a learning he was a learning leader. So the fact that he took responsibility for the mistakes of Gallipoli and then and then Singapore as mm. well achieved many of his missions and visions. Though um, the German defeat ultimately <laughs> pursued leadership despite his yep. failing health. He was flexible, pursued vision on the battlefield in World War One, in cabinet during World War One, into war years, and as PM in World War Two and in the nineteen fifties. So he was a states a states person and, and malleable around the different places Stanley McChrystal talks about. 
and he was willing to go against his party in order to pursue his own vision and values and for the for the good of the, the people. Um, had multiple party defections on issues of policy and principle. Social reform after World War One and his leadership of um, Britain during World War Two was opposed by many initially, but then um, heralded by pretty much everyone. Some cons: his leadership was continuously challenged. I think that's that's also the political state of the United Kingdom at the time. He was relieved of command in World War One. There was motions of no confidence and serious doubts of his leadership in World War Two, but history would show that that wasn't justified. He was pig-headed though. He mm. was so stubborn always attached to his own point of view. The master of the one-liner. <laughs> yeah, for sure. He was quite hubristic and he, he would discount data and information that was provided to him. Mm. So, you know, he, he he didn't really give himself a great deal of space for dissenting voices and and that's 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 quite a that's quite a driven individual, isn't it? Yeah, I, assured. I think in if we look at this from a modern context, and we talk about this in in hindsight when we when we do leadership um, training for you know up and coming leaders and also middle to senior managers, is that creating that safe space where people feel like they can put forward their opinions or 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 some some ideas. And I don't think Hitler was that. Oh, sorry, Hitler. I don't think Churchill was that guy. I don't think no. he created that. It's just lucky that he was talented enough to do a lot of the stuff himself. He wasn't very participative. He was hell-bent making sure that his point of view survived and, and ultimately mm. prevailed. Yep. Mm. All right, his leadership style, I've given him an 8 out of 10 for this. And I think, you know, having just said that I don't think he was very participative conversationally, I think as far as the war effort went, he was very collaborative. He was able to create great teams of teams to use uh, to use a modern version of that. And he had a lot of independence in his own decision-making prior in during World War I with the War Council, for instance. Yeah, that's true. I, I think he, he essentially did, ran his own race. So the Prime Minister at the time uh, during the early days, World War I, was under the impression that Churchill was consulting with with everybody around Gallipoli mm. and that when he was providing that guidance to the Prime Minister, that he was bringing recommendations from the War Council. It's again, it's another uh, illustration of him pushing through his strategy. So it, he possibly wasn't as possibly wasn't as collaborative yeah. as we might have hoped mm. uh, and it led to that outcome. Mm. Yeah, cut through some of the white noise perhaps. Yeah, really headstrong, unwilling to listen to suggestions against his plan. And in the interwar politics, you know, years when he was a chancellor of Exchequer, he was more cordial and cooperative with his government. That's interesting, mm. isn't it? When it wasn't a crisis. Yeah. So, yeah. When you've got time to think, you have to be more collaborative. Yeah, and I mean, he collaborated with, if you think about it, Roosevelt and Stalin. Yeah. <laughs> you know, co- cooperated on supplies and wartime strategy and, you know, Operation... Despite his, despite his misgivings. Yeah. Operation Torch, D-Day, the Italy invasion, collaborated with who he saw really as an enemy with Stalin. Mm. In, in the back of his mind, he was. And he displayed flexibility and ability to cooperate to achieve common goals. Yeah, very interesting. I don't think he put as much energy into post-war Europe as perhaps he... Because I think he was done. You know, I don't think that same energy that he put into World War II translated into into how he saw post-war Europe. 
I don't know. So do, do you think that makes him a, a quite the, the crisis leader, the yeah. emergency leader? He's not into business as usual? Yeah, it's, you know, that's, that's sort of, the, yeah, he sort of straddles that adaptive leader to a very dictatorial, delegative, and collaborative all at the same time. It's a, he's got a re- it's a really strange thing that he's got going on there. I think, I think maybe openly he's very strong willed, but I think behind mm. closed doors he's probably consulting really widely, um, and maybe that's been confused over the years as as him being quite authoritarian. I'm not sure. His his leadership style definitely changed over time, which is one of the pros. He went from independent to collaboration through to delegation. So he does demonstrate that flexibility mm. as a leader. Um, he was also flexible in how he could cooperate with people who opposed him, both Labor and pro-appeasement figures in the cabinet and Soviets. His mm. war council and the parliament was a multi-party organisation and, and he he started that right right from the outset. Yeah. From when he from when he took over, my favourite pro of his leadership style was the ability to just make a decision, mm. and, I, and I think you know, no decision often becomes a decision, <laughs> as well. Yep. So so making a decision at least you've used that choice to navigate where you want to go, as opposed to making no decision, which I think you know Chamberlain, there was definitely leaders of the time that were unable to make fast-paced decisions as fast as the information was coming to them, even in, a, in, a, in an era before analogue, let alone digital communications. Mm. I think even mm. even now in normal business life, there mm. is always a time for making, you know, for aggressively going after uh, after the goal and driving passion to, to reach your end state. Be careful of that word, aggressively chase your goal. Mm. Mm. But would you passively chase your goal? No. No, and Churchill's the epitome of that. Yeah, you know, he aggressively, he aggressively sought the end state, which was the destruction of the Third Reich. Right, and had, had no choice. And using that that word again, that aggressively chase your mission or your goal, that doesn't necessarily mean that he was doing it physically aggressively. He was he was trying yeah. to bring people with him to see the urgency of the situation. And show and show them, you know, and and by aggressive, it's almost like a huge amount of energy had to go into that. We often mistake that word aggressive for confrontation, for physical violence. Interesting, interesting use of the word, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, for me, it just means moving barriers aside hard, and it can be done respectfully. So, some cons: cooperation, um, collaboration often failed, as as Churchill would openly reject advice that was given to him face to face. Um, is he, that a con sometimes? Like in an emergency situation, sure, you've got to listen to advice, but at times you're going to reject advice. That's true. I mean, imagine what, imagine what he... I think it was the way he did it because he would alienate those around him sure. by, by, you know, it's like, sure. it's like we just use that word aggressive. It's aggressive if, if you're fighting the problem. But if you're fighting the person, then that's where you undermine the cohesiveness that is required of a of leader. Yeah. So you think he was would be openly dismissive? He was. Yeah, he definitely was. And he and if he could have curtailed that and yeah, and hey, yeah, I'll have a think about it, but at this point, this is what I think we'll do. You know, as opposed to, nope, we're going yeah. down this line. Yeah, 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 you know, yeah. and then people just don't want you know, it's that we talk about that safe space to be to be heard and to be valued, you know. All righty. So enduring legacy. 
you know what, mate? I'm obviously I'm a little bit of a fan here. I've given him a nine out of ten. He had a real positive and enduring legacy, particularly with the English people, but also within the the Anglosphere. As many consider him the greatest prime minister that Britain has ever had, due to his oratory skill, um, his leadership of the British people against the Nazi tyranny in World War Two, and he is cited as having saved Europe from from Nazism. If you imagine that, yeah. Do you know you're talking about the greatest prime minister that they ever had? Mm. In 2002, there was a BBC series called "100 Greatest Britons." Mm. And there was a large number of, of people, the usual suspects, Charles Darwin, Shakespeare, Elizabeth I. And at the end, viewers were invited to vote on who they thought the greatest Britain was. Mm. And at the end of the series, there was no doubt going for, via the, the votes that Sir Winston Churchill was voted the greatest Britain by the audience. Oh, they've, and, not, they've never forgotten. Yeah, exactly. So it wasn't just the greatest prime minister. He was the greatest Briton to ever have lived, according to that that poll. Yeah. Potential. It's so it's that's, I'm a fan. That, yeah, I'm I am fan. too. So yeah. his speeches and policies during World War Two were cited as the highest demonstrations of integrity, determination, and loyalty. Again, Dan Andrews. Go on bloody look at some Churchill, you know, tapes and then then go on a war footing and stop pandering to the media and start putting you anyway. Um, the yeah, amount- when, when when Hitler was rolling across the the lowlands of uh, Western Europe, mm. and and Chamberlain was in in power at this time, uh, Churchill would prevent his supporters from leaking information, and and he basically forbid his own supporters to to accuse Chamberlain of you know incorrect strategy and those sorts of things. And and a part of me wonders whether there, there's a cynical part of me that wonders whether that is because he was trying to garner support within his own fan base and the, and the people back in, in the UK. But there's also that aspect of loyalty as well. So, you know, we talk about integrity and loyalty and those sorts of things. There's probably a bit of that aspect. And as a former military officer, he certainly would have had that loyalty and integrity instilled in him as part of his culture yeah. and his upbringing. A small, a small number of his... Detractors say that he was an opportunist um, narcissist, but most people see him as principled, and that's why he he would jump from party to party. Some people, many people, criticised his imperialist, racist, sexist views of the time, and criticised his leadership of uh, regarding uh, various events. So Gallipoli, the fall of Sim- uh, Singapore, the Bengal famine. Should have heard some of the stuff he said about Gandhi. You know, it's pretty pretty racist. Really. Yeah. I'll check it after this. As demonstrations of his um, prioritisation of the motherland of England and ineffectual and failed military strategies. Again, place, time, you mm. know, would different worlds, would, you know, we were judging. Yeah. Yeah. Would a modern would a modern leader with all of those Western niceties prevail against a fascist Nazi state? I don't know. I, I just don't know. Not that it's you know, not that I in any way support you know, racism or sexism and the like. But I think that he just was what he was at the time. He was a product of that era. Um, most people, though, perceived him to be an inspiring leader with integrity, determination, who led through the darkest hour to defeat Hitler and how it ended. I'm going to give him a 10 out of 10. He had a long political career. Churchill was finally able to achieve his goals of becoming prime minister and leading Britain and then the Allies and defeating the Nazis. He created a new democratic europe in the wake of world war ii 
Defeated Germany World War One. Defeated Germany World War Two. He was there for for both. I'm of not those. sure. I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I agree with his World War One. I. I mean, he was as I said, he's essentially he was instrument. He was instrumental to sure to second third order effects of the day, and maybe he was a bit before his time in some regards. I think the Glippoli thing. No, he's right on right on time. Right on time. The Glippoli Glippoli campaign is well worth pulling apart um, because yeah. I, I feel like historians look at it. Probably different, maybe in some regard. Well, I need to look research a little bit more. And he received a state funeral on his death in 1965. Huge outpouring of support. Yeah. Did you know um, Sir Arthur Bryant? He's a he's a historian, mm. uh, and he's quoted as saying, "The age of giants is over." Mm. And and I guess if you think about it, since Churchill. I mean, who who is the giant of global leadership since that time? You might argue JFK, but really, uh, at the end of the at the end of the day, well, there hasn't been a need. There is one. There, is there, 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 there absolutely is one now. It's Putin, right? There's no doubt in my mind that Putin wow. has the same amount of followers, the same amount of influence as Churchill had. I know this is going to be contentious, but wow. You'll be careful what I say on a national podcast as well. But there's not much that happens in day-to-day life where the strings aren't coming back to to him as a leader. Far more autocratic style of leadership than uh, Churchill. Do we? Do you trust your survival and fighting skills and should we get Putin like on the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> road, road to Putin. But, I don't know. But I mean, have we have we really needed to right have? Putin. <laughs> have we really needed to have you know someone like a Churchill since? Uh, have we have we required that as a result of Churchill? Matt uh, Ronald Reagan, Ronald Reagan, JFK and his fight against mm. communism, maybe. Mm. Uh, but who who are the who Reagan are the Reagan leaders? Reagan and Reagan and Gorbachev? You know, modern heroes. They In, probably yeah. they probably stopped. World War Three. Three. Mm-hmm. So overall leadership summary, I gave him 45 out of 50, Trent. Probably could have been a little bit lower, I guess, if I wasn't fanboying so much. Um, conversely, Hitler. <laughs> yeah, conversely, Hitler, 38. Not saying I predicted it. <laughs> Churchill's inspiring oratory and displays of public empathy, being in touch with a common person, saw him be a figure of inspiration for his determination, commitment, patriotism, uh, integrity, especially during the war, as we said. Mm. His inspiring motivation led him to high political positions. He effectively pursued his mission of protecting Britain and providing for the nation's people and was flexible in doing so. His leadership style ranged from independent to collaborative to more of a delegator towards the end of his political leadership. And and his popularity waned when he was independent he wasn't as popular. When he was delegatory, he wasn't as popular. But when he was collaborative, he was right at the height. So that says something to me. All of this contributed to him achieving remarkable visions that he was able to sell to the people, such as defeating Germany when people couldn't see any hope. Um, he faced his strongest challenges from a, a leadership style during what were unpopular times or missions. His enduring legacy is the greatest Britain in history. And one of the most inspiring and effective world leaders probably demonstrates how good he was at leadership. And we owe him thanks in a lot of regards. What do you think? Like I, like I said right at the start, imagine what this world would look like without without him. 
Uh, you, you often hear citizens of the US talk about saving saving the Western world, and and but had had he not been there prior to the arrival of the US forces, it wouldn't have mattered. <laughs> exactly, you'd be starting from scratch again. So. It is down to Churchill and then his ability to be collaborative and draw draw the US into the into the war. I mean, they eventually were forced into it anyway. But you know, the lend lease program is one of those things that it was it was groundbreaking. The, groundbreaking. The, Give us the tools to fight and we'll do the, yeah. we'll finish the job. They absorbed huge punishment, um, as did oh. Europe prior to prior to the economic beast of America spooling up. But, and yep. let's not forget the Australian you know, involvement and an amazing con- contribution punching well yeah. above our weight. Since then to now, we are a force mm. multiplier. You put Australian troops in, in place, you might as well have three times the amount. And we do the job, we did the jobs that people didn't want to do and we did them We did them well and paid a, a, a massive sacrifice as a nation. You know, myself, you, and our kids would be six foot four if it wasn't for World War One, World War Two. <laughs> you know, the population, <laughs> they, took the, they took the best. And yep. so the country's still still probably working its way through that. But yeah, I think Churchill, great leader, great man, probably for the right time, wouldn't be successful now, and and rightly so, uh, isn't in touch. Probably the thing I think that was his biggest downfall was not being able to create those safe environments for for people to be valued and heard, and and therefore he didn't have as diverse options at his fingertips as he could have had as a leader. But a lot of good things happened on his watch. Mm. Mm. Cool. Trent, thanks very much for the last hour, mate, jumping in and, and getting in amongst Churchill with me. Uh, I've appreciated uh, actually going back over and, and thinking about Churchill and, and I've always I've always been a bit of a fanboy of Churchill as a leader and, and it's a great opportunity to, you know, think about what he gave us. You're not going to believe who we've got next week. Who's up? I thought we'd go with Monash. Lovely. <laughs> you know, a lot of people might not know about John Monash. And then maybe Ataturk the week after. That'll be cool. Let's get around it. You know, you talk about the greatest Britain. You know, we're talking about... Great. Greatest the, Tur- the greatest Turk. We're talking about one of the greatest leaders of all time. Ataturk. True. Yeah. Thanks very much for listening to the Warrior You podcast, everyone. See you next week. Thanks for listening to the Warrior You podcast. Did you know that our parent company, Hindsight, offers leadership and resilience training as well as workshops? If you would like to know more, please head to www.hindsightleadership.com. If you would like to become a supporter of the podcast, there's a donation tab at the bottom of the main podcast page. All contributions are greatly appreciated and help to keep the show on the road. If you're interested in the Warrior U Military Preparation course, you can find all the information through the podcast website page. Just click on the training tab. All this information and more can be found at www.podcast.warrioru.com.au. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365 day returns.